Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. Amachi <coughs> camp are guided by a very young soldiers. One time, soldier stopped me and, hey, you, you want to talk to me? And he said, yeah. Uh, are you a human being? I said, yes, don't you think so? Yeah, you look like a human being. But when I came from South Carolina, they said that the Jap is not the human being. They are like a gorilla. So if you want to kill them, that's what I learned in the camp. They're gorillas. That's what Mutsuhoma learned about herself when she went to the camps. To most Americans, she wasn't even human anymore. Jap is not the human being. Mutsu was Japanese. It was 1942, just after the Japanese government bombed Pearl Harbor. Less than three months later, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066. The order allowed the government to round up over 100,000 people of Japanese descent from all over the West Coast and send them to military camps, where they lived for almost four years. The camps were remote, isolated, Stretches of desert or grassland bulldozed over and then smeared with half-assembled rows of huts. The room that we had, I mean, it was just a room, just a room barrack, just one little barrack. It, it's just a room. Often barbed wire enveloped the camps, and men carrying rifles watched the prisoners from high towers. And no matter where they went in the United States, it was very cold in the winter and very hot in the summer and dusty all the time. They didn't heat the rooms. We, we uh, froze to death the first winter, or not really to death, but then it felt like it. And then the rain would come in through that hole in the roof. It was horrible. I could just sit down and cry. But all of it, the camps, the order to round up a whole group of people based on their race, taking their possessions, their land, the massive open-air prisons, it was all legal. And if we don't learn from our history, we're bound to repeat it. I'm Salima Hamarani, and this is Making Contact. This year is the 75th anniversary of what we now call Japanese internment. And every year since 1942, Japanese Americans have tried to get the rest of us to remember what happened, to notice the scar internment left, not just on the Japanese community, but on all of us. So my name is Satsuki Ina, a third-generation Japanese-American. I was born in the Tule Lake Segregation Center in 1944, which was an American concentration camp uh, during World War II. Satsuki and her family spent most of the war incarcerated, and she uses the term concentration camp when speaking about what we usually refer to as internment. There were many euphemisms used by the federal government to minimize the degree of injustice that the Japanese Americans suffered. In documents signed by President Roosevelt, he referred to them as concentration camps. Today, Satsuki Ina is a psychotherapist and a documentarian. 
She was eager to talk about her story, which starts on December 7, 1941. The day the Japanese military bombed Pearl Harbor and the United States government entered World War II. This is John Daly speaking from the CBS newsroom in New York. The Japanese have attacked the American naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and our defense facilities... Once the military Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, it served as kind of a point at which government officials, military, could mobilize around the idea of a enemy source living in the U.S. Here at the Naval Air Station is grim and positive evidence of Jap treachery. Here, foul blows were struck. Japanese Americans quickly became targets within days, hours of Pearl Harbor. The Issei, first generation Japanese who are not allowed to become citizens, who were leaders in the San Francisco Bay Area, they were being rounded up uh, within hours after Pearl Harbor was bombed. Racism against Asian immigrants existed long before Pearl Harbor. But Pearl Harbor definitely made that racism more intense. Um, it was just uh, incredible, the feeling that that gave us. This is a U.S. soldier named Joseph Arsino. Of um, hatred for anybody who would backstab us like this explaining the anger and elation right after the attack. You could cut the amount of hate that was in that room. You could cut it with a dull knife. and uh, um, it, was, it was just unbelievable how high off the floor I felt. And that high off the floor hatred made life difficult for Japanese Americans. Roy Ebihara was a boy at the time, living in Clovis, New Mexico. Right after Pearl Harbor, he was driven out of his home by an armed white gang in the middle of the night. It must have been about 9, 9 o'clock at night. And I, I just recall just crying and crying, just uh, living in fear. And so the, we all cried and cried as kids. And so they were able to round up all the, the, mm -hmm. the Japanese there, put them in these cars, and then you just... We took off. That was the first wave. Name-calling, isolation, attacks. Then came laws. Laws which made all that racism legal. Did she have to go through a curfew here in San Francisco? Yes, sure. And then people who had jobs that required that they be there after the curfew had to get special permits or were not allowed to be out on the streets. They had to stay in their homes. There were curfews, permits, a kind of special registry, the firing of Japanese employees from government positions, the seizing of Japanese banks and businesses. All of this happened in less than three months, between Pearl Harbor and the exclusion order. And did people comply with these orders? Were people resisting the curfew or the attacks on their businesses? There were certainly uh, individuals who uh, resisted and evaded the removal order. Fred Korematsu is one of them, and it's led to a Supreme Court case opposing the incarceration. But the National Japanese American Citizens League was the, the basic civic organization made up of Japanese Americans, encouraged uh, the Japanese in the community to comply, to not resist, mm. to show your loyalty by doing what the government was asking. And then the government began rounding up people of Japanese ancestry and putting them into open-air prisons. If you had uh, one-quarter Japanese blood, you were removed from your homes on the West Coast. This included orphans, 
babies, children who were in orphanages in Southern California. They were removed from the orphanage and placed in the uh, Manzanar concentration camp. So this was based on race. People were actually rounded up. Yes. So they were rounded up. Like, did people come into the city one day and just take everybody out of their homes? How no, they- this this was interesting. Uh, there were signs posted in the neighborhoods and uh, radio announcement, newspaper announcements, that if you were Japanese, alien, or what they called non-alien, which, you know, is an American citizen, right, um, were to report at these different stations where the Greyhound bus or the military trucks would come and load up the people. So they were told to be there at a certain time and a certain day. On evacuation day, as it came to be known, thousands of Japanese lined up near trains or buses in designated areas all over the West Coast. They wore numbers on their coats and on their shirts. They held a suitcase, maybe two. The United States government had taken almost everything else that they owned. The War Relocation Authority, established in 1942, handled the details of their incarceration. The agency also produced propaganda about internment. They are not prisoners. They are not internees. They are merely dislocated people, the unwounded casualties of war. The videos painted a rosier picture of life in the camps. They were designed to soothe people's conscience. The Army provided housing and plenty of healthful, nourishing food for all. We are setting a standard for the rest of the world in the treatment of people who may have loyalties to an enemy nation. We are protecting ourselves without violating the principles of Christian decency. Compare that to how George Murray Harrow felt when he entered a camp for the first time. There are some things in your heart that you can't forget, and that is the day you walk through that gate, you know you lost something. Because, you know, the gate's got guards and barbed wire fence and everything, and you're walking from a free life into a confined life. And um, uh, I know one thing. It it was hard to explain to somebody what was it like in camp because uh, we never tell them the truth what it was like in camp. It was horrible. On evacuation day, Satsuki's parents were shipped from San Francisco to a temporary facility in San Bruno. My mother was pregnant at that time, so they were housed in a horse stable that had been quickly transformed into human livable conditions. Um, But she wrote in her diary that the smell of the manure was still there and there was still evidence that horses had lived there before. So they were, they were basically living where the horses had been living, yes, in, they in were, stables. Basically. They were in stables, yeah. The humiliation of being housed where animals once lived is a feeling Matsao Watanabe remembers clearly. I had been to Puyallup a few times when it was the, the fairgrounds of uh, western Washington. Little did I know that I would replace the pigs and the cows and and they had a hell of a lot of nerve calling it Camp Harmony. This is a situation Satsuki's parents were in when government officials confronted them with the loyalty questionnaire. Asking them, even though they were American citizens, whether they would declare their loyalty to the U.S., stating that they would be willing to bear arms against the enemy and that they would forswear loyalty to the emperor. 
and they did have relatives in Japan. Uh, they they answered no no to the two questions, and they were then labeled as disloyal and shipped to the Thule Lake Segregation Center, which was the maximum security prison uh, for Japanese Americans. This whole experience, losing their home, being rounded up and forced into camps, having children while incarcerated, it scarred them. By that time, they were in so much despair about what life in America was going to be for their children that they decided to renounce their American citizenship. They were a young couple in their 20s with a baby, experiencing this really horrific um, life experience as American citizens. And they weren't alone. Officially, we've been taught that the Japanese did not protest. They went quietly into the camps. But in fact, many rebelled. If I couldn't accept curfew, how could I accept this? As soon as that question hit me, I, I knew the answer, the answer. I couldn't, I can't accept it. It's worse. This is worse. There were riots in the camps, strikes, demonstrations. Masses of prisoners renounced their U.S. citizenship. In Tule Lake and Manzanar, two concentration camps in California, guards shot prisoners during riots. But people continued to rebel. The mass imprisonment lasted through the end of the war. On January 2, 1945, the U.S. government released everyone. But Suzuki thinks that the Japanese-American community is still suffering the impacts. You can get out of the camps, but the camps don't get out of you, is how I see it. And the word trauma hadn't been applied to this experience until fairly recently, in the last 10 or 15 years. After my parents were released, the anxiety was worse because there was no protection for them. Employment was difficult, housing, there was in the San Francisco Bay Area, people wouldn't rent to Japanese. After the war, there was a lot of continued hatred towards the Japanese. So um, that went on for years. And I think 9-11, I think the growing current attitudes and fears about immigration and refugees and the traumas that are experienced by in the African-American community. All of these issues today have triggered for people in our Japanese-American community the possibility that such a mass incarceration could happen again. It's what moved so many Japanese-Americans, like Satsuki, to participate in social movements. We are working together to use the Japanese-American experience as a symbol of the the horrible mistake, the horrible blindness that hysteria can lead to. So we're, we're taking what happened to us as a, a way of uh, protesting and keeping America vigilant about what could happen. President Trump has already moved to ban Muslims from entering the U.S. and threatens to build another registry. And it feels like we're at a similar crossroads to the one we faced 75 years ago after Pearl Harbor. So what can we learn from our history, and how do we fight back? I'm Salima Hamarani, and this is Making Contact. Shall I read you the statement? <laughs> Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. That's President Donald Trump 
from the campaign trail in 2016, no calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the U.S. A Muslim ban. Within a week of taking office, Trump signed an executive order, temporarily barring people from seven Muslim-majority countries from entering the United States. Trump and his supporters also want a Muslim registry. Discussing drafting a proposal to reinstate a registry for immigrants from Muslim countries. Yeah, and, and perfectly, perfectly honest, it is legal. They say it'll hold constitutional muster. I know the ACLU. And they want to use the mass incarceration of Japanese people as a precedent. A while ago, we did it during World War II with Japanese, which, you know, call it what you Come will, on. maybe, maybe you're wrong. Not, you're not proposing we go back to the days of internment camps, I hope. No, no, no. I'm but not here's the thing. The United States already had a Muslim registry. It was called NSEERS, the National Security Entry Exit Registration System. And the resistance we're seeing today is anchored by the network that formed to fight it. Breaking news that we want to bring you September around. 11th, 2001. From New York City, apparently a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. You have no idea right now. Oh, another one. Another plane just hit. <gasps> right. Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. At 8.46 a.m., hijackers crash an airplane into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, then the South Tower. By 10 a.m., the towers were collapsing. Around the country, people are glued to the television, watching as people emerge from the wreckage, coated in gray dust, wet with sweat and blood, shocked. People throw themselves from the upper floors of the building and fall to the ground. We've never seen anything like it in an American city. New York City. The firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now, raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way. In the days following 9-11, people came together to help New York recover. But as the death toll rose, many worried about what might happen next. Al-Qaeda took credit for the attacks, and anti-Muslim sentiment echoed through workplaces, schools, and on television. Many Muslims draped American flags outside their homes and shaved their beards, hoping the fear would pass. And that this is a radical, savage religion. The people aren't all radical, thank God, but the religion is the worst, most deadliest idea in the history of the world. But it didn't. We need to make sure that, the Bush administration uh, the used the chaos of 9-11 to push through drastic changes. Of Islam, real Islam. They created the Department of Homeland Security, passed the Patriot Act, and sent soldiers to Iraq and Afghanistan to fight unending wars on terror. They built a mass surveillance apparatus, and they created NSEERS. The program targeted men 16 and older from 24 Muslim-majority countries and North Korea. They were called to immigration offices to be photographed, fingerprinted, and interrogated. Lara Kiswani, director of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, remembers when the announcement came. So we heard about it through the news and media, but we also heard about it in the streets because people were being um, told that they had to register. So thousands of men did. Over the course of the program, about 84,000 men went through the process. Elizabeth Oyoung is one of the many lawyers that immigrants' rights groups called on to help navigate the situation. She remembers watching the long lines of men spiraling around the immigration office in New York. They lined up, you know, literally a massive circle in full view for everyone to gawk at, outside in the freezing cold, wrapped around 26 Federal Plaza. Her client, Mohammed Safaraz Hussein, was a teenager at the time, living in Queens. He grew up in the U.S. as an orphan, raised by his uncle. His case became famous as an example of how dangerous NSEERS could be. 
Like most of the other men lining up to register, he wasn't sure what to expect. I know English. I can speak to them, I can understand them. But when I look down across the hall, I seen people that, I mean, there were shackles there. I seen people that were just being interviewed by people who were just screaming at them and they didn't have a clue what they were talking about. There were repeated questions. And the funny thing was, they didn't have any translators there. Despite Elizabeth's help, immigration officials put the teenager through deportation proceedings and tried to send him back to Pakistan, a country he hadn't seen since he was eight years old. Then what happened is after he was there all day, the New York Times heard about Mohammed's case. And front page of the Metro section, they did a story about Mohammed. Mohammed was lucky. He had connected with an organization and a lawyer. His story got national media attention and support from politicians. Eventually, he was granted asylum and became a citizen, fighting off the deportation case that began with NCRs. But not everyone was so lucky. 84,000 people registered under NCRs. Immigration officials put almost 14,000 into deportation proceedings. They set their own trap because they thought they were complying with what they were supposed to do. They thought they would go and report and then go home that night to their families. Instead, they were detained. Many of them never got to go home to their families again. Not everyone faced NCRs alone. The second the government made the announcement, people began to mobilize. Hi, my name's Anirvan Chatterjee. I'm with uh, the Alliance of South Asian Taking Action. People like Anirvan, who isn't even Muslim, he's Bengali, and NCR still affected him. We couldn't help but get involved because it was so close. I mean, if they were coming for them, we knew they were going to come for us at some point in time. The spectacle of men who looked like him, bearded, dark, with dark brown eyes, getting dragged through a racist registration, forced him to act. Anirvan and Lara were part of a network that hit the streets soon after the government announced the program. In that moment, it was a lot of like day-to-day, minute-to-minute rapid response. We did not even know what to expect. We didn't know what was going to happen when people registered. Um, so we were kind of figuring it out as we went. They managed to pull resources from all over the country on a moment's notice. They wore green shirts so people could easily identify them and went to markets and to the lines at the immigration offices. If somebody hadn't talked to a lawyer, for example, um, somebody wearing a green t-shirt outside would like pull out their cell phone and dial up and call up a lawyer. And there would be lawyers who were sometimes in other states, like in sitting in California, sometimes we'd be calling lawyers in New York City. And they would just do this like immediate street side consultation over the phone. In major U.S. cities, people like Anirvan and Lara met people waiting in line for special registration. They talked with reporters and held rallies. They stopped deportations. So while we were defending individual immigrants from registering, and while we were defending our community members from hate violence or repression from the FBI or law enforcement, we were also mobilizing them in the streets against imperialism, also against U.S.-led wars, to really show that we as a collective were understanding that our experience here was intrinsically tied to what was happening in our homelands. Over the next decade, they fought the entire post-9-11 apparatus. They protested U.S. occupations, drone strikes, mass surveillance. They shut down military training exercises for local police departments and grew this network of people and organizations. The government suspended NCRs in 2011. Then just before leaving office, President Obama dismantled it altogether. Uh, Obama's move comes only one day after Donald Trump appeared to reiterate his pledge to reinstate this very registry. The program had a lasting impact for Arab, Muslim, and South Asian communities. 
but it also proved to a vulnerable community what they can do when they organize and fight back. We need victories along the way. We need to be able to tell a story. And the um, shutting down of NCRs is phase one of how we are going to be responding as a community. Both of these lessons, what it means to be vulnerable and what it looks like to fight back, they mean a lot under the current Trump administration. Everyone was told they had to register. So back then, pretty much everyone registered. And I think this is a lesson that we need to learn from um, today. What we need to cultivate is a culture of resistance to any type of registry or any type of targeting of any community. Rather than um, concepts of like, let's all register in the registry. We should be talking about let's all resist this registry. Let's be in a line of defense between the Arab and Muslim immigrants who may have to register and the state. But a lot has changed since 9-11, when mass surveillance was still in its infancy. The Department of Homeland Security said as much in a memo announcing the dismantling of NCRs. It basically said, we don't need NCRs anymore. We now have much more sophisticated surveillance tools and can track people in real time. So fighting a Muslim ban or a Muslim registry under the surveillance state of today, well, that's a different game. These protesters are part of an organization called DoBetter.Tech. They work as designers, engineers, business staff for tech companies. They're protesting a company called Palantir outside their office in Palo Alto, California. We are worried that some of the tools that Palantir has been building um, look a lot like the pre precursor to a Muslim registry or could be used in workplace raid style mass deportations. Jason Prado and Sophie Shea are two of the organizers of the protest. So, Two products have recently come to light, uh, one called AFI and one called Falcon. I'll speak to AFI specifically. It was made to be a sort of connection or a scaffolding between multiple federal agencies. AFI stands for Analytic Framework for Intelligence. Every federal agency has its own databases. And rather than comb through each one for information, AFI connected them. But it's become its own database that replicates data from every source that it connects. Rather than connecting databases that already exist, it started making copies of the data and storing it, including the data from the NCR's registry. To make things worse, Palantir is using algorithms to assess people based on this information. And they've generated what they call risk assessments of individuals. Many People who are employees in the tech industry have pledged to never support this. You know, in tech, there's not, there are not unions. There are just company ideology and company employees who follow them. So, so as a coalition, we are giving people the space to step out of those company lines. And are you worried about re retaliation? Of course. But at the same time, in 2017, I decided that I'm not going to live in fear of speaking out on the internet or in real life due to people doxing me or threatening me. I refuse to be complicit in our own oppression. Today, millions of people are choosing not to be complicit. I suggest a new strategy. Within 24 hours of Trump announcing the temporary ban on travelers from seven Muslim-majority countries, people flooded airports all across the U.S. They shut down terminals and forced Customs and Border Patrol to free the travelers. 
And increasingly, people are looking at their own workplaces and neighborhoods as places to effect change. For tech workers, that meant challenging their own companies. But what about the rest of us? Where can we be effective and powerful? We're at a crossroads. History could repeat itself. We could recreate internment camps. We might create a new Muslim registry. Or we can fight on a massive scale for the world we want. The force will be with you, always. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. Thank you to the Densho Archives for allowing us access to their oral histories. You can hear more interviews and access their internment curriculum at densho.org. And thank you to NYC Maharani Productions LLC for letting us use clips from their film, Whose Children Are These?, about NCRs and youth in New York. To download a copy of this program or to subscribe to our podcast, check us out at radioproject.org. Our producers are Marie Che, RJ Lozada, Anita Johnson, and Monica Lopez. Our executive director is Lisa Rudman. Sabine Blazin is our web editor and audience engagement director. Our development associate is Vera Tykulsker. I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>